My name is Dario Hasenstab, Ivy Degree in International Affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand democracy through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today again? I mean, why are we speaking about democracy? Hello, Dario. Well, as last week we discussed, uh, democracy forms an incredibly important pillar of the Western bubble, as we've been discussing it throughout all these episodes of our podcast. The democracy and the sense of superiority of our political system is a huge reason why we can no longer connect with the outside world. And internally, we've also become blinded. We somehow walk around with democracy being this sacred cow that cannot be touched, that cannot be discussed. We cannot have conversations about, is democracy actually the thing that we want? Instead, we just assume that it imposes on us, it, it gives us a certain sense of uh, moral superiority over everyone else who isn't democratic. And the result of that is that we are blinded to the realities of the outside world and we're blinded to the potential weaknesses of the inside world. Exactly. So last week we discussed the fact sheet and the bubble. And this week we will be talking about what is the damage and what is the future. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So when we're looking at the damages, um, we obviously have internal ones and external ones. And that's a real problem because, I mean, believe it or not, but we really like democracy. Absolutely. There's a very good reason why I decide every day to live in Western Europe, because I feel very comfortable with that. And democracy is a hugely important aspect of it. The ability for us to um, freely record this podcast without any sense of authorities putting pressure on us without any legal consequences to anything that we might say in this podcast is something that I value greatly. But from a broader perspective, uh, democracy has some very, very good dynamics that you do not easily find in other political governance systems. Um, the automatic legitimacy that democracy confers on on society and on the political system. The fact that people vote means that they're automatically identifying with the system. They feel part of it, even though one individual vote doesn't make much of a difference. That act of voting actually allows you to connect to your uh, national leadership, to the state that is working for you rather than controlling you. Um, the accountability that is part of democracy, where politicians are held accountable for actions, at least theoretically, if politicians mess up, then not only is there the chance that they lose the next elections, but even before the next elections, you will have institutions, democratic institutions, that will punish them for, for example, corruption and other such things. So there are loads of reasons uh, why democracy is actually something to strive for, and that has significant positive value to the ordinary lives of uh, people living in such a system. Do you like voting? I mean, because, I mean, yes, one vote doesn't make a, make a difference in itself, but then theoretically, you know, everyone could say uh, voting. Well, I mean, if my vote doesn't make a difference, why should I vote? So, so do you like voting and how do you deal with this 
I mean, with this conceptual thought? I believe, if I remember correctly, that I enjoyed doing it. I, I, I enjoyed voting the first couple of times that I did. Um, the problem is not that I don't appreciate the symbolic gesture of voting. I still very much appreciate that even now in 2023, but it's become harder and harder for me to know who to vote for. I always vote, but it is kind of frustrating to see uh, political parties no longer having that great vision that I so crave in society. So the, the actual act of voting has become a little bit of an exercise in frustration, but the symbolic gesture of going to the to the booth and, and actually saying I'm part of this system is of course very valuable and something very positive is it, I assume that you you're still in the phase that I was in 20 years ago with respect to feeling proud to vote I love voting it's my one of my favorite things to do um, I, I voted in every election that I had a chance to vote in local uh, state level federal level European elections big fan of it, it, it Interestingly for me, uh, the the idea of of voting is very similar to the idea of paying taxes. I know that a lot of people don't feel that they're the same because voting is you expressing your power as a voter, even though, as you said, one vote doesn't have much power at all. And taxes is seen as an imposition of the state onto the individual. But both are essentially us saying we're connected to the society around them. And paying taxes is something that I always feel very good about in that sense. Um, and I never understand that people do not see that as a similar symbolic connection to this to the society you live in. Uh, I, I very much feel the same uh, when it comes to paying taxes and voting. It is this feeling, you know, of, I don't know, it's almost a state-like feeling that you go to vote or, you know, if you vote by mail, you, you make your little cross somewhere. It does make you feel good about yourself and most importantly, part of a society. Um, but enough about why we like democracy so much um, and, well, partly why we like exercising it so much. Um, because as we as we outlined uh, last week, so there's a serious bubble thinking involved with democracy, um, which leads to internal weaknesses, which I want to look at uh, now. So what are some of the internal weaknesses of democracy that we are blinded um, to see because of the Western bubble? One of the problems is that once you tell yourself we have achieved politically what we needed to achieve, I don't know, once again, I always go back to the 1990s. So at some point we felt that we have, we managed to overcome the big, big hurdles of democracy. For example, the fact that Athenian democracy was only male citizens and no one else. Um, then at some point you've achieved everything you want to achieve because everyone above the age of 18 is allowed to vote as long as you have the nationality of that country. And the system works reasonably well. And at that moment, at some point, you say, okay, we're done. And internally, we've got the perfect model. We're at the end of the deterministic path. We're at the end of uh, where humanity should go because there's nothing better than this. We can't think of any system that works more effectively at increasing human well-being. So now we can just celebrate our huge accomplishments and we don't have to look back at it. And this is one of the things that I notice a lot in your generation, for example, and students I have at university, is that this automatic sense that democracy is always going to be there, that it obviously is the best model. Nobody needs to discuss that. Nobody's ever even thought about why it is the best model. It is just there. Uh, we celebrate it and we can just go on with our lives instead there's first of all no reason to think that there can't be decay in that democracy. So 
the internal damage is that that arrogance of saying we've achieved what we had to achieve means that we're no longer looking at the potential weaknesses that you can observe and the fact that democracy actually requires a lot of very hard work a lot of modesty and humility in in creating a system that is not just about you as an individual it's about the whole society and holding politicians accountable for the right kind of things not just for not following your own agenda but holding them accountable for not weakening the pillars of democracy those kinds of dynamics seem seem to have been completely forgotten because we now live in this bubble of saying we're perfect we're there we've done it and now everyone else has to become like us but we don't have to worry about how our system is functioning because um, it's what we're used to and what we, what we will have for the next 500 years or so i mean let me make a comparison to the european union here um, and more more precisely to the schengen uh, schengen area because that's one of those things where i realize it myself how much simply by something existing for my entire life and me growing up with it that we as a generation take for granted and that has always existed you know there's a certain naturalness uh, to it is is the schengen schengen area which i assume is not the case for your for your generation but it's certainly not the case for my parents generation who still had to show their passports when traveling to another country which to me i get offended if i have to I, I, if I move from Germany to France and someone asks me for my passport, I get offended. And so it's the same with democracy in, in a sense where it has always been around and it's the most natural thing for us that kind of questioning that whether moving from one country to another without being checked is something good or whether the way we experience democracy is, you know, whether there should be a systematic question about it. So I... I, I see that very much because of that personal experience I've had with, with Schengen. Absolutely. And it's very easy to understand the psychological dynamics here, right? If you have been if you were born in the past 30 years or so, then this is all you've known and this is all you've been comfortable with. And it's very hard to question something if you haven't ever experienced that other kind of reality. So I think this analogy with Schengen is, is, is a very good one because it is just something you take automatically for granted, it's there, and you don't actually ask yourself what the world would be like in any other kind of model. And what would be the advantages of not having Schengen? What would be the advantages of not having democracy? Those are questions that you, that seem unnatural to you because it is simply not how you have grown up and, and the environment that has shaped you. And this is exactly the issue. So my generation was sort of the last one that experienced at a very minimum this existential fight between democracy and authoritarianism in terms of the Cold War. I mean, I was quite young when the Cold War ended, but I was aware of it at least. But if you go back three generations, the post-Second World War generation, for example, had to work very, very hard to build up what we have established now. That wasn't an easy path. It was about all kinds of deep, difficult conversations about what kind of political systems um, are actually reasonable within the democratic model, what, what is required to create a sustainable dynamic within the capitals of Western society. Uh, what does that require from institutions? What does it require from the individual? These kinds of debates were fundamental at shaping democracy as we know it today. And those debates are gone at the moment. They are simply 
no longer visible. At most, what you see is, oh, here we've got a superior version of democracy that we live in, and we've got some evil populists who are trying to undermine it. As if that is the problem, as if the problem just comes from the outside. No, the problem comes from the inside. It comes from the way that institutions and the establishments are no longer working to maintain democracy. See, now that you mentioned populism, I think this is a very good example of part of the damage because populism is always seen as, as the root cause of problems. You know? Uh, you know, Donald Trump, he is the problem. Instead of seeing them as a symptom of the underlying problems that are there in democratic societies. I've, I've never understood that, that sense of Donald Trump or populist parties in Europe somehow being seen to be the enemy. Um, now the enemy is comes from within. The, the overemphasis on the 6th of January, we've discussed this in other episodes, the overemphasis on crazy things that Donald Trump does. Yes, they're very unpleasant and they're bad science with for our society. It means that something is going horribly wrong. But what is going wrong is not the fact that Donald Trump exists. The, what's going wrong is the fact that 80 million American voters are happy to vote for Donald Trump. That says something about how disconnected the political democratic establishment is from those voters. And it is not just the fault of that establishment, it's also a responsibility of individual voters. But the question is there, what makes voters vote for populist parties? What makes them support Donald Trump rather than saying, oh, Donald Trump is the enemy? I mean, in, in, in the 1970s, 1980s, Donald Trump would never have gotten anywhere. Why do, does he get somewhere now? This reminds me of, an, of a conversation we had when we recorded the media episode, so the Western bubble and the media, um, and a conversation that I brought up that I had with someone working for the public broadcasting uh, here in Germany. And I asked him, oh, I haven't lived in Germany for a while. I've just moved back. I've realized that suddenly there's a lot of mistrust towards public broadcasting. Why do you think that is? You, I mean, you're working there, so, so there must be some form of conversation within the institutions that analyze, okay, why is there a significant part of the population that is suddenly not trusting the media anymore, that calls us fake news? And the person's answer was, oh, it's the alternative for Germany. It's the right-wing populist party. And I, was, and I was like, don't you think that they are rather a symptom of this? No, no, no. They are actively undermining public broadcasting, and they are the reason why people no longer trust in them. And I think that's another example of these confusion of what is the root cause of a problem and what's a symptom of, of a problem. This goes very much back to something that we've also discussed in the past, namely the managerial attitude towards democratic policymaking in the 21st century, including public media. So uh, if you look at, for example, the debates that continuously rage around the BBC in the UK, the BBC pub British Broadcasting Corporation, uh, very much an example of public media information flows. And they are continuously being targeted by left and by right about not being impartial. And then the debate goes something like this. Oh, impartiality means that we have to uh, make sure that uh, we don't express political opinions, that we don't express political perspectives on the world. No, that's not what impartiality means. That's a managerial attitude. Like, let's take all the ideology and all the politics out of information flows. That is lazy intellectual uh, behavior. 
what you want from a public broadcasting corporation is to reflect the very real issues that exist in the country and not to have a political agenda, not to have an ideological agenda as an organization as a whole. But if a journalist or a commentator takes a political position, that is exactly what people need to see, what people need to hear. They need to feel connected to the realities around them, to the institutions that guide the democratic system. Instead, it seems as if the political and, if you like, media establishment seem to believe that what their role is, is not to take any, any position on anything. They just manage the country in a reasonable way and people should understand that they're being very reasonable, even though the reality of the electorate of people who vote for populist parties is that their life doesn't seem to be reasonable. They see incredible wealth which they don't share. They they themselves have to every week figure out how to uh, get to the end of and uh, end of the week uh, without getting into debt. They have to find ways to send their children to school to get food on the table. While at the same time they see an establishment that is very comfortable with creating an economic upper class. Uh, that displays a type of wealth that is completely disconnected from the reality of the large groups of people. Those kinds of issues need to be discussed in politics. They need to be discussed in media. Instead, no, we're just managing. We're just doing our thing. We're the reasonable people. And that's where it goes horribly wrong. So let's, let's look at what these reasonable people then do externally. So... I mean, one of the lessons I I had in university and actually from you, one of my very first university classes was lesson 101 of foreign policy. If you want to distract from internal struggles, you start some external struggles. Um, and I think the perfect example here, and also because it's the 20-year anniversary and because next week uh, we will be publishing an episode particularly uh, devoted to this topic, Let's talk about Iraq again, a topic that we have dealt with um, thoroughly um, and in many episodes, and we're going to bring up time and time again. But how is democracy, so the democratic bubble, leading to something like the Iraq war in 2003? So at a foreign policy level, the first thing you have to realize is that the domestic electorate that holds, at least theoretically, leadership to account automatically assumes that their state, their country, Spain, the Netherlands, the United States, Germany, are a force for good in the world because they are democratic. So that means that automatically when their leadership takes foreign policy action, especially against a country that is not democratic, then it must be for something that is righteous. It must be for something that is moral. Because surely a democracy would not engage in immoral acts because that goes against our blinded sense of superiority when it comes to democracy. So then when it comes to a conflict like Iraq, it was much, much easier for the White House and the neoconservatives pushing the US foreign policy agenda to make the case that Iraq needed to be invaded, again, in a voluntary aggressive war that was not out of self-defense from a US perspective or from a Western perspective. It was much easier for those neoconservatives to make that case to the general public in the United States, but also elsewhere in the United Kingdom and many groups within Europe, because Iraq was very much not a democracy. Iraq was a dictatorship, was an authoritarian regime, and therefore automatically the implicit assumption, the implicit sort of thinking in the electorate is, if we are overthrowing a 
dictator, we are a democracy, we are getting rid of this evil guy called Saddam Hussein, then surely that must be an act of good. And surely that is justified. Even if it kind of goes against international rules and is not really the way that the Westphalian system is set up, it's okay because we are the good guys in history. Which creates an incredibly damaging bubble, obviously. And how is this transferred? I mean, so here we're speaking about a full-on invasion of a country. Um, and how is this reflected in countries where the West does not necessarily intervene militarily? So let's talk about Sub-Saharan Africa. So the interesting thing about Sub-Saharan Africa, and we talked about neocolonialism in the past, is that um, they've only been around for 60 years. And when I say they've only been around for 60 years, it's obviously not the cultures and the religions and the ethnicities of Sub-Saharan Africa, but the Westphalian states. And those Westphalian states were created by European nations in the 19th century. And when they became independent in the 50s, 60s, Sub-Saharan African countries were given a really, really difficult political situation to deal with because all of a sudden they had to stabilize countries that had very little in internal coherence because there was no historical identity, because it was an artificial identity created by Europeans. And what you see from that moment on is that European democracies are continuously criticizing Sub-Saharan Africa for not being democratic. And they're continuously trying to interfere with Sub-Saharan Africa out of the goodness of their democratic heart, because they just want to stimulate democracy in those countries. But in reality, it becomes a it becomes a pattern of dominance of we are the good guys, we are your parents, we are the ones who know how to live life because we're democracies. You are children who are not yet fully grown because you don't have this democratic system yet. So we're gonna interfere with you until you become full democracies like ourselves, until you've grown up into our superior uh, governance system. And that has been hugely, hugely damaging. It has been a big part of neocolonialism, but it's also been very damaging to European uh, interests themselves because they do not understand that Africans often see those Europeans as just arrogant, hypocritical so-and-sos. They're not interested in dealing with Europeans who continuously wag their finger and say, oh, you have to democratize, you have to have elections. It is not the reality that many sub-Saharan African states live in. And as a result, um, there is a huge disconnect between the foreign policy coming from Europe and the realities in sub-Saharan Africa. So, so far we've only talked about the West looking down on countries, um, you know, because the West is simply stronger as, you know, the United States or Europe as an entity looking down on these countries. How does this entire bubble thinking with democracy versus non-democracies translate onto, you know, the geopolitical level of someone, of other superpowers, someone who is theoretically a co-equal to them? So China, let's, I mean, China is the big, is the big one, obviously. And, I think the easy answer here is, you know, the systemic rivalry that they called out a few years ago. But how does this arrogance translate towards China? And what's really interesting here is to take a example of not thinking from a democratic bubble if you're the West. If you observe China to be a rival somehow for geopolitical interest, let's say natural resources, which is a big deal. By the way, going back to Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where China and the West are competing for natural resources, you have established that geopolitically China is a rival, but you don't have this democratic arrogance about you. Then you would think, okay, 
can we actually do business with China? Can we deal with China effectively? Can we have some kind of agreement about how not to engage into too much international conflict? Can we work together? Or if not, how can we connect to other societies so that they do not fall into the hands of our rivals, right? That would be a geopolitical, rational way to approach it. Unfortunately for the West, because of its democratic bubble, because of its sense of inherent superiority, they will never take China fully seriously. They will never actually be able to connect to China in a serious way because as long as China is authoritarian, they are less than the West. They are inherently somehow um, backwards, um, not where Europeans are in the deterministic path towards a future. And therefore, uh, there is always the sense of, oh, China can't be taken fully seriously and we can't fully connect with China until they become democratic. At the same time, it means that China will always be seen as somehow inherently evil, not just another rival. You know, two rivals can be at the same moral level and just have a rivalry, but instead China will always be seen as somehow immoral or at least less moral than the West, which means that when the West speaks at the UN, then their voices should be taken more seriously than Chinese voices, despite China representing 1.4 billion people in the world, of course. And then it comes to the rest of the world, and the West can no longer connect to the rest of the world because instead of saying, hey, China is a geopolitical power, we are a geopolitical power, we should work with you because we offer you a better deal, the West says to the rest of the world, no, no, this is a no-brainer because we are democratic, and either you choose for moral righteousness or you choose for evil if you choose for us you're on the morally right side of history if you choose for china you're on the morally wrong side of history and the rest of the world looks at that and thinks hang on that is not a choice that i have to make i don't believe in this ideological approach by the west i don't believe that automatically the west is morally superior i've seen what the west does i've seen the damage that european countries created over the past 300 years I feel very comfortable working with China, thank you very much. And if the West still wants to work with me, I'll do that as well. But I am not going to get into this Cold War mentality of democracy versus authoritarianism because it's not a reality that I face in my world today. This very much goes back to the episode we, we recorded on development aid, where the West says, oh, we will, we're happy to give you a lot of money to make sure that you develop properly if you install democracy, if you have elections, whether a country is ready for this or not. I mean, we've talked about uh, Sudan there a lot, uh, where, you know, after these elections, usually violence erupts. Um, however, you mentioned uh, the United Nations here, and I think this is uh, another, you know, damage, another problem that this democratic bubble creates, simply because, obviously, international organizations were set up by the West, and therefore in its own image as a form of uh, democracy, how is that damaging? Because theoretically, you know, 193 nations at the United Nations, all of them have the same vote. You know, I, I think countries could get behind that. It is fascinating to see how these systems that were set up in the 20th century, as you said, very much from a Western perspective, in the Western self-image, with sort of only reluctant acceptance from communist China and communist Soviet Union in the 20th century um, have now sort of started turning a little bit against the West and the West has a real problem with that, right? Um, and the reason why uh, the West is still desperately trying to keep those organizations as 
being defenders of their sense of morality, their sense of ideological righteousness, is because the West genuinely believes, this is where the bubble really comes in, genuinely believes that it's the objectively superior method of ruling society, of arranging political affairs. So when the United Nations or the ICC, which we talked about, um, when they follow a Western ideological agenda, the West doesn't see that as a subjective choice, but as objectively doing the right thing. And then when they notice that these organizations slowly start moving a little bit more away from that Western approach towards a Chinese approach, because after all, China and India and many other countries are playing an increasingly important role in international affairs, then they start saying, oh, no, no, they're being corrupted by China. Whereas in reality, if you say that China is corrupting the UN, then the West has been corrupting the UN for the past 70 years, as in putting their ideological stamp on it. So the West cannot deal with the idea that their ideology transmitted in international or global organizations is anything like ideology. They believe it to be objective rather than just the perspective of one part of the world. And what now? So when we're talking about the future, um, let's be provocative here. How is the world going to look like in 77 years? Because we are talking about democratic backsliding. Uh, you know, there's always these graphs that show you when, when we're most countries in the world democratic, when not. Um, if we think about this graph in 2100, how is this going to look like? Is the majority of the world going to be democratic, following the liberal democracy model, or will that look differently? As you know, um, I don't have a crystal ball and we always have to be very careful in predicting the future. That's why I prefer to work in scenarios rather than saying this is what definitely will happen. But as you know, I, I have this, I put this enormous emphasis on the 1990s as sort of a pivotal moment where the West had a choice to make about how they were going to enter into the 21st century from a democratic perspective. And they made the wrong choices. They went for a very neoliberal agenda. They didn't consider the possibility of internal uprising against that democratic system. And as a result, I, I think there's a very strong case to be made that the 1990s were sort of the high point of uh, democratic achievement. And for the past 20, 25 years, it has been going downhill. And there is no reason to think that that decline is going to stop anytime soon. The reason for that is that because the West is in this bubble, because leadership, establishment, media, political, economic establishment doesn't seem to understand the danger that they're in. It, it seems as if they're really blind that there's this big ball of fire coming at them and they don't see it coming, um, but it's coming nonetheless. Um, it's very difficult to see a way out of that. It seems that the decline will continue until at some point in the late 20th century, we wake up, we look around and we don't see anything resembling the democratic values that we appreciated so much in 2023, right? Uh, and this is something very worrying. And so this is when we look around us. Um, again, not a prediction, but just scenarios. How is this going to look like in the West? Do you think that the West is going to continue being democratic and like without any significant changes to the system or to the developments that we're seeing right now? What is very likely is that the West will continue having elections because elections is such an easy symbolic thing to have 
um, in a society, right? Because as long as you have elections, you can claim to be democratic. But the underlying processes that make a society democratic or not are will be deeply undermined. So even though people go to the opinion polls every four years, as by the way they do in many countries that we consider authoritarian right now in 2023, um, they go they go and vote. The underlying systems that make democracy democracy respect for the rule of law a limitation of power of the elites um, in this case at the moment economic elites more than other types of elites um, the uh, the limits to uh, how far policymakers governments can take their policies without being held accountable. Those things will be undermined. And so even though I would be very surprised if 30 or 40 years from now, we don't have elections in the West, that doesn't mean to say that the West will still be democratic in any significant way. And that is that should be the main concern. And it surprises me that there's no more panic about that. It seems rather than having a deep, deep conversation of what kind of society we would like, these, the establishment just goes after populist parties and goes after Trump and goes after others and says, haha, idiots, they don't understand how they are fools and how we are the reasonable people. There seems to be very little introspection about a establishment, economic and political, that has really, really been messing up society over the past 25 years, but is not being held accountable for doing so. When we're looking at technological developments, so talking about you know increased participation, I don't know, let's say we all wake up in the morning and we get to click on a button uh, to vote for something, or technolo technological developments such as social media. You know, so there's, there's these two sides to it. There's increased participation, but there's also in an increased amount of voices participating, you know, part of the bubble that we described. How is that going to influence this democratic bubble, is it going to make it worse or might it pop it at some point? This is an area where I can talk more conceptually than practically. I think you're more connected to social media and technology than I am. So maybe uh, you you can answer that question better than I can. I have some concerns, but but what what is your experience here? Is, is the technological world that we live in today, is it conducive to democratic processes or not for you and your generation? we're doomed um no it's uh, i mean it depends on how you use it right i i'm not as worried about my generation um because despite concerns we are very aware of the dangers of the internet i'm concerned about your generation and the generations above because you know all these lessons that were always taught to us about uh you know facebook and fake news and be careful what you read on the internet we're very aware of that I'm not so sure about the elder generations that didn't grow up with this. So with regards to this, I believe that the social media aspect of, you know, technology influencing um, democracy and democratic processes, the ones that we discussed earlier, I believe that they are actually going to make it worse. However, when it comes to a lot of the other elements, talking about open source, um, you know, uh, tools such as Wikipedia, um, this being expanded on others, that there's an increased amount of information out there. Uh, talking about more direct participation through technological means. I, I mentioned my local town earlier. Uh, the fact that the entire town could uh, look at different uh, proposals for a bike path through the city and then vote on, on whichever one we thought was best. And with this leading to a more 
accepted and more inclusive proposal, I think that this is an incredibly healthy aspect of technology that can, you know, that can add to this. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to give an answer here because social media, let's shut that down. But a lot of these other tools are very helpful and I believe are very important. And this is not even to mention, um, you know, I, I mentioned open source, how, you know, how much research can be done into areas to hold people accountable. You know, how much stuff has been uncovered in the past few years of politicians doing dodgy stuff simply by someone on the internet pointing it out. And so with regards to this, there's certain elements that I think can be improved, you know, especially the ones that we outlined, um, increased uh, legitimacy through more participation, increased accountability uh, through more transparency, you know, that. But at the same time, all these negative symptoms that we've outlined, um, such as, you know, too many voices being involved um, and, you know, polarization. I think that those uh, roots, you know, the, the underlying problems here, that they will actually be intensified by it. So it's both. Um, let's shut down social media is my call. <laughs> There's a nice intergenerational conflict here, I think, because um, I would, uh, as you know, I don't have social media really, but uh, I would be very concerned, for example, about people voting for things. You mentioned a bike path as something positive. I can see real dangers with that, not so much a specific bike path or not. That That's a nice bit of information that policymakers can use to their advantage. But this idea of people feeling entitled to be part of the decision-making process all the time is that perfection of democracy that we talked about last week, which is, I think, very, very dangerous uh, because that becomes then just the will of the majority all the time. It becomes the 51% wants the bike path, then we'll do it without any intellectual conversations about it. It's very managerial. It's very much looking at statistics, at numbers rather than the deeper issues. Is either one of the systems perfect no of course not both systems have real difficulties uh, but i do see many more dangers with this kind of technological change that would undermine the very basis of democracy than clearly you do maybe at some point we have to have an extra episode on that oh of course i wouldn't let anyone vote on foreign policy or on how high should the interest rate be? But, but what's the difference? What's the difference between foreign policy and that bike path? Because you could, if once the bike path has become a norm, why not do it on foreign policy, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, this is kind of ultimately exactly that point. I think that we we hinted at uh, in the last episode when we said we do want to have those intellectual elite conversations. So ideally, you break it down to that. You have an intellectual elite having conversations and you leave people with options ultimately having elections, you know, for political parties or voting for your intellectual elites. And um, now I just feel very strongly about the spike path. <laughs> no, it's, it's of, of course, this is something where on the local level and on very representative things, you increase that feeling of legitimacy and being part of society. However, I would not want, I wouldn't want to vote on the interest rate of, of the European Central Bank. I, I wouldn't know what to do. And, and another issue that you uh, highlighted, which is true to a certain extent that there's it's easier to sort of sound the alarm bells when something goes wrong within the system because you just post it online. You can uncover corruption or uncover bad policymaking much more easily. But that is not to say that in a pre-internet environment that was impossible. Um, Watergate, for example, right? Famously, 
exposed by two journalists. And in many ways, the problem with today's world is, yes, you can expose corruption or bad policymaking within democratic systems, but nobody really takes it seriously anymore because there's such an overflow of information that it's just seen as just another opinion. Here's just another person shouting about something. Whereas in the past, when a major newspaper would write about a corruption affair, that would have serious consequences because the population didn't have a direct access to that information, they had to rely on newspapers to hold government to account. Now everyone feels entitled to have their opinion and to be emotionally involved in the whole process. And as a result, nothing really matters anymore. Before we you know, go into other, other paths where nothing really matters anymore, um, let's talk about this deterministic process that we believe there is with regards to democracies, that we believe You know, according to Weber, that at some point, everyone, every country is going to have developed to a point where they're obviously going to become a democracy. Let's be honest. As soon as you have middle class status, you care about democratic processes. So is this reality? Like, is this the end of human development that at some point we're going to end a democracy? There is absolutely no reason to assume that it's a much more likely scenarios that history, as it's always gone, goes with ups and downs, right? It goes in curves. And uh, the idea that democracy is the end goal would only be sustainable if there is a mechanism that keeps equilibrium within democracy. But that equilibrium is completely lost at the moment. So equilibrium, we mean a stable situation that doesn't change anymore, that is just stable inherently because of the way it works. Uh, that is no longer the case in democracy. It probably was never the case anyway. Democracy is historically a very young project, Western liberal democracy. Um, it's only 100, 150 years old in Western Europe, maybe 250 years old in the United States. But it was exactly the founding fathers of the United States who already said that democracy would die at some point, that democracy was not a long-term sustainable path and that it would eat itself from the inside out. And that's exactly what you're seeing right now. So this automatic assumption that democracy is the end goal of humanity, if you like Fukuyama's 1990s discourse, is not borne out by reality. There's no evidence to assume that it will be. Lots of people want it to be like that. I would love it to be like that. But I don't believe it is. And if we want to somehow keep our democracy alive and and move into the 21st century with still some kind of semblance of democratic values, we need to really work very hard for that. Instead of fighting the symptoms of Trump and populism, we need to work on it internally and ask ourselves, what are we doing at the moment as the intellectual, political and economic establishment? So start solving our internal problems and stop causing external problems is how I would summarize these episodes. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the second part of our two-parter on democracy. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com, and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? This is a quote that you actually told me about by an Austrian psychologist, Alfred Adler, and it's very close to my heart. It goes, it is always easier to fight for one's principles than to live up to them. <laughs>